You're listening to a provocation from the 2013 World's Literature Festival. Writers from across the world gather to discuss the art and craft of writing. This year's salon is on the theme of ways of reading and ways of writing. I'm going to talk a little bit today about, um, about the contexts of digital technologies and how it's affecting both uh, how we write and what we write, things like that. So, um, start with something fairly self-evident. Our sense of self is malleable, plastic, relational, and always changing. Who we are and who we think we are depend on the context in which we find ourselves, historical, geographical, socioeconomic, technological, cultural. These contexts determine the way we experience and think about ourselves, and thus they determine our literary self-expression, if and how we write ourselves into being. So today I'm going to focus on digital technologies and how they're changing our experience of self. But first, in order to illustrate this idea of the effect of a context shift on literary expression, I'd like to take a look at a Japanese genre of fiction called the I novel. Um, in Japanese, it's shishosetsu, or watakushi shishosetsu. Um, the I novel first emerged in Japan at the beginning of the last century, and prior to this, Japan had been a closed country for almost 250 years, um, a period of time which spans the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the French and American Revolutions, um, really right up until the beginning of the American Civil War. During this time, Japan was ruled under a very rigid feudal system in which the self was experienced perhaps less as an independent and individual identity and more as an interdependent or collective uh, entity. And after Japan was forced to open its borders, within a very short period of time, Japanese writers and intellectuals came into contact with Western science, philosophy, literature, art, and ideas like liberation, equality, feminism, human rights, um, all uh, you know, were part of this. Um, naturalism and notions of the individual self inspired Japanese novelists to experiment with first-person narratives. Drawing from real life, they inserted themselves into their stories, creating a gray area of semi-fiction, which blurred the bounds between public and private as well. These I-novels, which were often confessional in style, relied on a sense of intimacy in the relationship between reader and writer, and indeed you could say it created that intimacy as well. The genre was born out of a historical context shift, which radically widened Japan's relationship with the world, and which allowed Japanese writers and readers a new way of experiencing and performing the self. Okay, so now I'd like to turn to a non-Japanese i-novelist, um, you could argue perhaps, uh, Milan Kundera, and quote from his novel, uh, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. In it, he writes, once the writer in every individual comes to life, and that time is not far off, we are in for an age of universal deafness and lack of understanding. So in this noisy digital age, I think it's hard not to agree. And just by way of context, Kundera was writing the Book of Laughter and Forgetting in the mid-70s. Uh, the word inter internet was first used in 1974. The first two computers were linked in Silicon Valley only five years earlier, in 1969. And by 1994, the first few online diaries or journals had started to appear. By February of 2011, there were over 156 million blogs in existence and that's not counting Facebook or Twitter. So, in the three and a half decades since the Book of Laughter and Forgetting was published, 
this explosion of digital media has led to what Tom Chatfield, writing in The New Scientist, calls, quote, a democratization of written language unprecedented in human history. Uh, Chatfield is the author of a book called uh, Netymology, a linguistic celebration of the digital age. And he writes that thanks to more than 2 billion internet-linked computers and 6 billion internet-linked cell phones in the world, we are all both authors and audiences. <coughs> so there may be some class-based assumptions in his statement worth questioning, but I think what he's saying is basically true, that as a result of this technological context shift, we're all both authors and audiences, and that the tools we're using are democratizing written language. So is Kundera right? As the writer in every individual comes to life, are we in for an age of universal deafness and lack of understanding? Or have we already, through Facebook and Twitter, achieved this? So that's the first question I'd like to offer as a provocation. And uh, without attempting to answer it just yet, I'd like to move on and consider a couple more. Um, the first is, how is our new technical, uh, technological context, the internet and the ubiquity of writers, changing our experience of writing? In other words, how we write. How is it changing our literary output? What is being written? And how is it changing our sense of self, of being a self in the world? So in order to address the first question, how is technology changing our experience of writing, I'd like to share a personal story. Um, I just published a new novel called The Tale for the Time Being, and it's a novel that very nearly wasn't. Um, during the decade since my last book was published, I'd abandoned several manuscripts uh, before starting on this one. Uh, this draft grew quickly into a huge and unwieldy thing, and as I struggled with it, I was aware of a growing sense that my mind no longer worked the way a novelist's mind needed to work. I didn't understand why. But by 2009, I'd pretty much given up on the novel, and I'd also given up on thinking about myself as a novelist, too. Um, so then I was invited to a uh, three-week writing residency in a cottage in the woods where there was no Wi-Fi or internet connection. Now, I'm a heavy internet user, uh, so when I heard this, my initial reaction was just outrage. Um, <laughs> this is ridiculous, you know. What kind of neo-Luddite place is this? Um, everything I need is online, you know, my RSS feeds, my bookmarks, my links, um, all my research. You know, I can't possibly write without the internet. But in the end, I accepted the invitation, and I guess I'd like to share a little bit about what I learned about my mind unplugged. So I moved into my little cottage, set up my computer, and immediately tried to launch Firefox and check my email. <laughs> but since I couldn't, um, I opened the draft of my manuscript instead. Uh, within moments of confronting the first page, grave doubts and questions started to arise, as of course they do when you're writing. And I became aware of my mind like restless, twitchy fingers reaching outside itself into cyberspace, kind of groping for Google. But because I wasn't connected to the internet, I was forced to make do with what was inside my mind instead. Uh, this was a terrible feeling. Um, <laughs> so, so this was the first thing I noticed, how often my mind reached outside itself for answers. But paradoxically, even when I drew upon my mind's diminished inner resources and solved the problem, like finishing a scene or a paragraph or even finding the right word, I was equally unsettled. I'd feel a burst of relief, but immediately my mind would start groping for a hit of online connection as a reward for accomplishing a task. Um, even just hitting command save could trigger this urge. 
the internet had become a way of punctuating time and savoring satisfaction, kind of like a cigarette after sex. And in fact, being disconnected felt a lot like quitting smoking. I used to be a very enthusiastic and dedicated smoker. Um, so I know that addiction is by nature impatient. It wants gratification now. But impatience is death for a novelist. My internet addiction had trained me out of the dogged, plotting attention to detail that long-form fiction demands. And demands not just of a writer, but of readers as well, which is why I think probably many of us are worried about the future of the literary novel. I mean, even if I could still write one, who would have the patience and the presence of mind to read it? My own reader's brain, once trained to go deep, has been similar, similarly corrupted. And like many heavy internet users, I suffer from constant partial attention syndrome. My surface-skimming, laterally-conditioned mind goes scuttling off after the next hyperlink that promises to take me elsewhere, where a better reading experience may or may not be waiting. And this intermittency, this may or may not factor, is important. Um, behavioral psychology has shown that if you train a rat to press a lever for food pellets, but reward her only intermittently, she will become a persistent and compulsive lever pusher. Um, this intermittent reinforcement is called a variable ratio schedule, and it produces behaviors that exhibit both the highest rate of response and also the greatest resistance to extinction. In other words, the most stubborn and persistent habits. So think gamblers at a slot machine or you, know, you checking your email. Um, shopping works like this too, so does hunting. So does research for a novel. And I, I love to research, but I used to have to physically you know, go to a library in order to collect the stuff to put into novels. Now I surf the web. Now the library and the shopping mall and the slot machines have all moved into my computer. They're always there and always available. And while this is convenient, it's also a problem because information is stuff. Immaterial, perhaps, but still subject to the same rules that govern any clutter. And clutter, as any compulsive hoarder will tell you, can paralyze. A psychologist friend of mine is writing a book, was writing a book on creativity, and ironically, he was also suffering from writer's block. Um, he, he told me that his mind felt like a warehouse stocked with materials to build a house. He collected all sorts of joists and beams and 20 different kinds of shingles. But instead of building the house, he just kept accumulating more shingles. Um, I could relate to this, you know, it's no wonder my manuscript had grown so cluttered and unwieldy with so many shingles in my warehouse, how could I possibly remember what I had in stock? Which brings me to the subject of memory, which is perhaps the single most important cognitive function we rely upon to create a self. Recently, while reading a book, I experienced a disconcer disconcerting moment of cognitive dissonance I was trying to remember something that the author had written several chapters earlier, and, and I couldn't. It was like I'd forgotten how. My mind tried to activate the book's global search function when suddenly it occurred to me, you know, wait, this is a book made out of paper with a cover and pages and no digital functionality. Somehow it struck me as deeply wrong that the only way to find the reference was to flip, flip back and manually operate the pages. The book felt broken, but so did my mind. And even more disturbing, I was having a conversation with a friend, and I was trying to remember some trivial fact. I think it was the, the word for the breathing hole of the banana slug. And for a single jarring moment, my mind mistook itself for a search engine. The question, what do you call the blowhole of a slug, initiated the search, and then, you know, nothing. 
my brain just crashed and, and hung there like a frozen hard drive or a stalled internet connection, you know, sort of spinning uselessly like the pizza of death. <laughs> no wonder I feel stupid all the time. It's called a pneumostome, by the way, the breathing hole of the slum. Um, I've been worried about holes in my memory ever since my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. But it occurred to me that the lapses I was experiencing were not really gaps at all, but rather the illusion of gaps created by the technology that was invented to fill them. Several years ago, I read an article in the Journal of Higher Education called The End of Solitude that talked about this phenomenon, how technology creates the very problem it's designed to solve. Thus, television creates boredom by trying to alleviate it because it erodes the skills we need to entertain ourselves. The author argued that the internet creates loneliness by enabling constant connectivity with our social networks, thereby defamiliarizing solitude and turning it into something to fear and avoid rather than to savor. I think something analogous is happening uh, with the way my mind experiences information retrieval. My cyborg mind has become so conditioned by search engines and digital interfaces and high-speed access that now it mistakes itself for Google and naturally finds itself sluggish and wanting. My memory, and therefore my sense of self, has become so widely distributed that unwired, I am insufficient. So what I was experiencing in that cottage in the woods was nothing less than a crisis of faith. The internet had made me profoundly insecure. I'd lost faith in my mind, this intimate, immediate, and very local engine that drives my creativity. The internet, always on and always present, exposes me to an incessant cacophony of genius and brilliance that's infinite and boundless. The entire intellectual history of humankind, not to mention every novel that's ever been on any bestseller list, is there. And it's not actually there, it's, it's here. All those brilliant, genius minds of human history have taken up residency here in my house, in my study, in my damn computer, on my lap. They're right here lurking behind the thin and insubstantial layer of pixels that represents my flimsy manuscript, my feeble thoughts, and my woeful words. And now it's not just the brilliant geniuses, it's everyone. When the writer in every individual comes to life, jostling for eyeballs, you know, for likes and tweets and hits and unique visits, then what's the point? Why add to the cacophony? So it's no wonder I was having trouble focusing. No wonder I was losing faith in my writerly self. No wonder I thought I would never finish another novel. Luckily, the sense of self is malleable, plastic, relational, and always changing. During that three-week retreat in my little unwired neo-Luddite cottage in the middle of the woods, I learned something about neuroplasticity and about how my brain has been reconditioned by digital technology, but also about how quickly it's able to snap back once the context shifts. Two weeks into the retreat and away from the internet, I scribbled in my journal, oh my god, I have my mind back. It's back. I'm back. What a relief. I brought the manuscript home and started strictly moderating my online time using a really great application called Freedom. Um, I'm still a pretty heavy internet use user, but I did finally manage to finish the novel. Okay, um, so I'm going to skip over the question of how technology is changing what is being written, uh, because I think perhaps we can uh, pick that up later. But instead, I'd like to move on to this last question. How is it changing our sense of self? of being a self in the world. 
And Chatfield makes another interesting point. He says, our young tools have combined the instant and the infinitely reproducible, and are steadily blurring the bounds between private utterance and public performance. Now, he's not talking about the girl walking down the street in New York screaming into her mobile phone to her boyfriend. Um, Chatfield's concern is with writing as a public performance of self. And to illustrate this, he looks at the acronym LOL. And he says, the person who types LOL is rarely, if ever, literally laughing out loud. <laughs> Rather, they're framing their words within a kind of stage direction a present tense commentary designed to communicate the, uh, the conversational emotions that writing, outside the most elaborately crafted literary examples, cannot usually convey in the absence of a human voice and face. So embedded in this statement are some interesting assumptions. First, that writing is a self-referential act which breaks down the experience of self as an absolute and singular entity and requires the writer to experience herself reflexively as an observer who is typing and the observed who is not. The textual performance of the self through writing also requires the creation of a fictional or narrative present which deviates from other more, quote, reality-based presents. And then the third is that the person who types LOL is usually lying. <laughs> or, if not lying, at least fictionalizing. Okay? Because textual, textual performance requires a straying away, a kind of a prevarication, a literally a straying away from truth or reality, whatever we think that may be. And this is what fiction writers do. We create multiple worlds. So all of this, by the way, is ground that I cover in A Tale for the Time Being. Um, it's a novel about how writing and reading connects us across space and time. And I put myself into the novel as one of the two protagonists, um, a novelist named Ruth with writer's block and various internet-related cognitive issues. Um, Ruth, who, like me, lives on a remote Canadian island, discovers a diary washed up on the beach in the wake of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, and she becomes obsessed with finding the writer of the diary, who's a suicidal, suicidal Japanese schoolgirl named Naliaskani, who, Ruth believes, has written the diary just for her. So the novel plays with semi-fictions, with multiple narrative presence, the relationship between reader and writer, the creation of many worlds. But unfortunately, I don't really have time to go into this now. Um, so if you're interested, maybe you'll read the novel. Um, just to conclude then, uh, the internet is turning us all not just into writers, but into fiction writers, into cyborg fiction writers with attention deficit disorders. <laughs> um, the bands between public and private and fact and fiction are blurry turning us into semi-fictional meta-heroes of our own i-novels. We're entering an age of universal deafness and lack of understanding, not to mention loneliness, as our social networks exacerbate the problems they purport to address. True? Who knows? Personally, I think the outcome will not be as bleak as Kundera imagines. I hope that after we outgrow our adolescent attraction to our new tools, we may see a widening tolerance for, and also a more nuanced understanding of narrative. Because when a person experiences the self reflexively as performance or story, the relationship between the self and the world starts to shift. Reflexivity opens up a tiny gap between who we are and who we think we are. 
we realize that our stories are not ourselves, or perhaps that we are nothing but the stories we tell ourselves. Either way, our stories are not fixed and absolute, but rather flexible and relative, or at least relational. They exist so that we may be in relationship to each other. And as we learn to take our stories more seriously and yet hold them more lightly, I hope that we may become more open to other stories that are not ours, but which uh, we understand may be equally true. And when we start seeing reality as a network of ever-changing contexts rather than a fixed and absolute truth, our sense of self may become more relational and less rigid. And perhaps this is what we're seeing in emerging social networks that span old-fashioned bounds of geography and nation-state. So much in the way that the opening of its borders to the world resulted in a contextual shift in the Japanese experience of a narrative self, perhaps technology and the internet are widening our conceptual bounds, opening our imaginations to the possibility of a more interdependent, distributed, and generous sense of self and ultimately a more intimate world.